0: Happened to notice Dan Van Horn is walking a little lighter this week. It's because we had an ordination council for Dan. It's kind of like a bar exam for a lawyer, where the uh, elders of our church called together an examining council of ordained pastors uh, to come and examine his theology and uh, the work of the Lord in his life and so on. And uh, happy to say that uh, unanimously they recommended that we proceed with a service of ordination in recognition of God's call on Dan's life. And so, uh, set aside. uh, You want to set aside December the 6th. It's a Sunday uh, in the afternoon at four o'clock. We're planning a service of ordination with a celebration uh, afterwards. So, uh, you might want to mark that on your calendar. Uh, The book of Hebrews in the Bible, where we've been studying now for a while, um, as you, I hope, know, was written to a group of Jewish Christians uh, who never met Jesus personally, but put their faith in him, kind of like us. And uh, most people think that this group of people, this church, if you will, uh, uh, worshiped together in and around Rome. There are a number of Italian names that the uh, author of Hebrews uh, speaks to, and so the thought is, somewhere uh, in Italy around Rome, this group of people uh, were meeting. Uh, but their faith, when they were Jewish and then they put their faith in Christ, their faith brought them a lot of hardship and a lot of problems in their life, even persecution. And uh, the result was that they were tempted to go back to Judaism, they were tempted to go back to the way things were because. You know, uh, their lives were uh, being made miserable because of their faith. And so uh, the thought of abandoning their faith in Christ was on their minds. And Hebrews was actually written uh, to this uh, group of Christians whose world was literally falling apart. And so, very unlike American Christians, uh, at least Christians in the past, these people, uh, their faith in Christ didn't bring them any worldly advantage. Here in America, you know, if you're a Christian, at least in the past, there were a lot of advantages to being a Christian. Still in the South today, you know, there's a lot of advantages, but uh, I think we sense that kind of slipping away. Uh, But for these people, their faith set them up for the loss of their own property. Uh, Their faith set them up for the loss of their jobs, the loss of their family, the loss of privileges, and uh, maybe even the loss of their life. In Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 32... Uh, The author talks about this. He says, you know, remember when you first became Christians. Verse 32 says, "Um, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. So the author of Hebrews is looking back to when they first became Christians and the persecution and the suffering that they endured. And then about 15 years later, when the book of Hebrews was actually written to this group of people, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 4, uh, the uh, persecution, it seems, is ramping up instead of easing up. It says, uh, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So now their lives were being threatened, but they haven't yet you know, resisted. Uh, to the point of uh, shedding blood. So there was this ratcheting up of this uh, persecution that was happening in these people's lives. And and these people were scared. And so uh, in chapter 10 and verse uh, 29, um, you see they're being tempted to renounce the person of Christ. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. What do you think would happen to somebody who's embraced Christ and all the benefits and the salvation that Christ, and turned their backs on it? And there's a number of warnings like this, not this week, but next week, uh, Lord willing, we're going to kind of look at these warnings all through Hebrews, how serious a thing it is, you know, to renounce Christ and to turn your back uh, once you've been enlightened. And I want to suggest to you that all of this is very, very relevant to us because in Second Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul, uh, and it's very clear in Second Thessalonians, but the Bible talks about a period of time towards the end of human history when God's people will reject him, when God's people will turn their backs on him, this apostasy, this turning away, this rebellion uh, against the faith. Because of this antichrist who will rise up and uh, who will bring a lot of persecution into the world. And so in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 and verse 3, the apostle Paul writes to this church and he says, Look, don't let anybody deceive you. Don't let anybody trick you. Don't let anybody fool you. Don't let anybody deceive you in any way. For that day, the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes back, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Unless the apostasy comes first. There's other places in the scripture. Revelation chapter 13 talks about the fact that, you know, nobody will be able to buy and sell without renouncing Christ and taking the mark of this enemy of God called the beast or the antichrist. And, uh, you know, as we think about it, the technology is in place to kind of pull this off. Uh, it's not a far stretch for you to imagine kind of a one world government and some uh, somebody rising to the top of all of that and taking charge and, 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 so, and so there's this rebellion that comes first and this uh, man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes the seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. So just like these Hebrew people are facing this persecution, I want to suggest to you that you know, the time to think about this is not when we're in the middle of it. You can never put your seatbelt on when the accident's happening. You notice that? You know, I'll just wait until it happens, and then I'll put my seat. You can't do that. The time to think about this is ahead of time. Uh, and the time to think about this is before uh, this all happens. I think as Christians, you know, we live in two worlds at the same time. We, we live in this world, and, and, and we, we also live in the kingdom of God. We live in the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And when push comes to shove, we need to know which world is more important to us, which world is really more valuable to us. I thought of some of the songs we were singing uh, this morning, you know, and it's easy to sing those songs. But I thought if we were like these people that the book of Hebrews was addressed to, And uh, we were really suffering and somebody had a gun to our head and so forth. Uh, Which world is is the kingdom of this world really more important to us than the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? And do we value our salvation and what Christ was done for us? And again, the time to decide is now, not when we're in the middle of it. And so our passage this morning from uh, Hebrews chapter 10 is sort of the capstone on the last three chapters that we've been studying Hebrews 7, 8, 9 uh, all talk about how superior the sacrifice of Christ and the blood of Christ and the uh, heaven is to the old temple and to the old tabernacle and to the old covenant, the new covenant so much better and and so forth. And this morning we come to sort of the capstone of all of that um, conversation about how significant and superior the new worship is over the old worship in the Old Testament And that whole old idea that somehow we are accepted by God by our good works. That somehow by taking the law and being as good as we can, we can still be accepted by God. That was the old law. And So here's the problem with that. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, the law, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. The problem with trying to be a good person in order to be accepted by God is that you can never be good enough. And you will never be made perfect. And, of course, the next uh, other side of that is the fact that you can be made perfect by Christ's blood. And I think this is pretty exciting. Um, Even uh, though the old way was given by God, it was only ever a shadow of the real thing. It was a prototype. It was designed to point to Christ. It was designed to point to the blood of Christ and the reality that was coming. Uh, It wasn't the real thing, and so it can never uh, make a worshiper perfect. It can never really make you happy. If you've ever tried to uh, be accepted by God, by your own good works, you'll realize you'll never be satisfied. You'll never really be happy. And uh, it always leaves you uncomfortable. People, you know, have a problem with God, and it's called sin. And you can never get rid of sin completely uh, through the old worship. And so uh, look what he says. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near otherwise they would not have otherwise uh, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin but in these sacrifices there's actually a reminder of sin every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin not only does the old way of worship not take away sin, it serves as a reminder to always have your sin in your face, which is why you could never really be relaxed, why you could never really be comfortable in the presence of God. It was uh, the old worship, even though God ordained this whole system of the law and animal sacrifices, it could never really atone for sin. It was all intended to point to Christ. Have you ever noticed in the Old Testament how many times God himself says, I hate animal sacrifices? I hate the sacrifices of bulls and goats and and so forth. Uh, David, King David, you might remember in Psalm 51, David had sinned and um, uh, David knew that the Blood of uh, the sacrifices couldn't cover his sin, and so in Psalm fifty-one, he's crying out to God about his sin and how it's you know weighing heavy on him. And in verse sixteen and seventeen, he says, "For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. If God would be satisfied with another animal sacrifice, I'd give it. But I know you won't. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit." And a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, this is the Old Testament. And this is David recognizing that, you know, God is not pleased. God's not looking for more animals to be slain and for blood to be shed. He's looking for a broken heart, same as he's looking for in the New Testament. But this is way back in the Old Testament. You can go back to um, uh, Samuel, who was talking to Saul. Remember, God was displeased with Saul. And uh, he was demoted from his kingship. And uh, way back in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 15, uh, has has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? I mean, the Lord instituted this whole sacrificial system, but is that what turns him on? Is he really excited because we're just bringing these animals and slicing their throats and pouring their blood over an altar? Or is the Lord really looking for people to obey his voice. Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. What's really important to God? What's really important? If you go to Isaiah and Isaiah Uh, Chapter 1, Isaiah, you know, he's like, God has had it with your worship in the Old Testament. God just like goes off. Uh, He says, uh, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convicts convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Don't come and worship if you're going to embrace sin and iniquity in your life. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't go through the motions and the rituals of worship if your heart is not really for God. And that's what he's saying. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. God is like, I'm done. Forget the worship. Go home. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you die, right? Right? Um, Isaiah 66, at the very, there's Isaiah in the first chapter. If you go to Isaiah all the way to the end of uh, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66, he's still singing the same tune. Listen to this um, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. And he who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their own soul delights in their abominations. I will also choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they didn't listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. What's real worship? At the heart of real worship is obedience to the heart of God. It's a broken heart, a contrite spirit. God's not interested in multiplying and, you know, uh, more sacrifices. In Jeremiah, the same thing, Jeremiah chapter 7 and uh, verse 21. Notice, uh, again, how much uh, God talks about this. Um, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel... "...add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I didn't speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, Obey my voice and I'll be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you." But they didn't obey or incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsel and in their stubbornness of their evil hearts And they went backwards, not forwards, over and over and over again. In the Old Testament, God is saying, listen, I'm not about all these burnt offerings. I'm not, you know, looking for, I'm looking for hearts that would be transformed. Uh, Some of the prophets, the minor prophets, uh, kind of famous statements, Amos uh, chapter 5, I hate, God says, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not even look at them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. It's not about the music. But let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Do the right thing. Obey my word. Trust me more than you trust yourself. One last one in uh, Micah. Again, this is kind of a a famous uh, saying. Uh, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? What's the Old Testament really about? At Dan's ordination, somebody asked him, How do you reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament? The God of the Old Testament who's harsh and judgmental and slaying animals and throwing blood all over the place and the God of the New Testament who's full of love and grace and kindness. And Dan answered, well, he says, they're the same God. God was never turned on by having to be harsh. He was never excited about having more animals sacrificed and more blood shed." God's always been about a heart that responds to his, that takes him seriously, that values him, you know? And uh, so a big problem with the old way of worshiping God and trying to be good enough to be accepted by God is that it always left people with a guilty conscience. You were never freed up, you were never made perfect. In fact, um, verses 3 and 4 of Hebrews chapter 10 say the whole Old Testament uh, system was a reminder, not a remover of sin. A reminder but not a remover. And so it left you with guilt. I think guilt is the realization that I failed somebody, and now I owe them. What is guilt? When you feel guilty about something, isn't it because you've offended somebody, you've come up short for somebody, and, and now you have this sense that you owe them. Well, I failed God. I've fallen short of what he made me to be, and I owe God, and I've done something wrong. You know, I've fallen short. My heart tells me I need to pay up. That's what guilt is. And uh, when I feel guilty, it sort of influences my decisions. You know, like usually we stay away from people we feel guilty around. Isn't that right? If you mess up and offend your wife, you can find a million excuses to not come home. You just stay away because you know you're in deep weeds. You know you owe something, right? And uh, that's what guilt really does. And so uh, it affects the way that we live. And I think when we feel guilty before God, we tend to stay away from him. Why is it that we struggle so much with prayer? It's not really a time issue. Oh, well, I just don't have time. I don't think that's really it. I think when we don't appropriate this great salvation that God has given us and we don't realize that God looks at us and sees something perfect and we don't embrace that thought because we still feel guilty that we stay away. Why don't we get too close? You can talk to me, but from a distance. It's like Moses going up on the mountain, and the people all like, we'll stay away. You go talk to God for us. We're afraid to get too close because we don't really believe this great salvation that God really has provided. And so when we get into these relational IOU situations, uh, the relationships tend to begin to break down. Shame enters in. Distance crops up because nothing less than paying our debt, paying what we owe, right? Relieves the guilty heart. And so people try to work off their guilt. They try to pay off their guilt. They try to pass off their guilt onto somebody else. They even try to pay off their guilt. But I'm telling you, no amount of good deeds, no amount of community service, no amount of charitable giving, no amount of church attendance, like I've read all from the Old Testament, no amount of ceremonies and so forth can relieve guilt. It's a debt we owe. And there's only two remedies for guilt. Uh, You either pay what you owe And with God, that's impossible. And it was impossible in the Old Testament system because, as we see in um, uh, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They could cover sins, but they couldn't remove sins. In fact, they reminded you of your sins, and so you always lived with them. They couldn't remove our sin. Uh, But the other option for guilt is somebody cancels the debt somebody cancels the debt. I remember when I was uh, younger, my dad loaned me some money to buy a car. It's a Corvette, actually. And, uh, you know, and uh, I, I promised to pay him back and this and that and the other thing and made a whole chart, you know, and so much each month and this and that and so forth. And It came a month, well, I really couldn't do it, and then another month, and I really couldn't do it. You know, I was in college, and, yeah, I was working on Saturdays and painting houses and trying to pay off, you know, uh, school debt and car and whatnot. And uh, one Christmas, my dad said, I forgive the debt. I cancel the debt. That's what our Father in heaven has done for our sin. I cancel the debt. If you're walking around feeling guilty, you're not taking advantage of what God has given us in Christ. You're still living in the Old Testament, trying to be good enough to find acceptance by God. I I say this all the time. If you go out and talk to people and ask them, when you die, do you think you're going to heaven? 95% of them will say yes, and they'll say, and if you say, well, why? They'll say, because I'm a good person. Here's what you can know about that person. They don't have a clear conscience. They just don't because you can, it's impossible right so somebody has to cancel the debt so look at the next uh, cons- next uh, passage of scripture here in uh, Hebrews 10 verse 5 consequently when Christ came into the world everything changed right here's what he says this i think this is a conversation that Christ is having with the father right before he comes into the world this is kind of a, a privy conversation that we're privy to this conversation when Christ came into the world here's what he said He's talking to the Father, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. I just read, you know, a dozen passages from the Old Testament to testify to that. But a body you've prepared for me. Here's Jesus talking to the Father. But a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. I have come to do your will, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Why did Jesus come into the world? He came to do the will of God. He came to do the will of God. This is, I think, the conversation Jesus has right before he comes to earth, and it was always God's plan. You notice it was written in the book. It was always God's plan for Jesus to take on human flesh and become an acceptable uh, sacrifice, But what impresses me here is in verse 7. I have come to do your will. I have come to do your will. Everything Jesus came to do and everything he did was all written down beforehand. was all prophesied in Scripture. Jesus knew exactly what God was asking him to do. And don't miss the fact that from his birth to his death to his resurrection, it was all written down. But when Jesus says, I have come to do your will, Jesus is eager. He's determined to obey the Father. In chapter 12, in verse 2, we see how Jesus did this. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I have come to do your will. And he did it with joy, and he did it with a sense of obedience. It's the joy of obedience. Obedience from the heart is the essence of worship. It's about surrender. Uh, And I think Jesus did what God always wanted people in the Old Testament to do, the Old Testament worshipers. didn't want more sacrifices. He wanted obedience. He wanted trust. He wanted people to recognize who he is. And it's what God still wants from us today is to recognize him through obedience. This is the first and great commandment that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. What is that? It's obedience. It's surrender. To love is to uh, serve. It's to sacrifice. And that's the first commandment. It's what God has always wanted. And, you know, uh, maybe you know this morning there's something that God really wants you to do. And you just aren't going to do it, you know. Or maybe there's uh, um, some need to confess something that you've just been ignoring, you know, something from your past that just keeps kind of hanging like, you know, brand guilt and so forth. And or maybe you need to, you know, um, make the commitment that you made. You made a commitment. Maybe you maybe need to do the commitment that you that you made. I don't know. Maybe God is uh, pressing you to forgive somebody. Maybe God wants uh, you to reach out to somebody, and that person's on your mind. You've been ignoring and Push them off. What's the essence of worship, really responding to God if he's really God? It's obedience from the heart. It's a contrite spirit, you know. Uh, one of the biggest, I think, um, deterrents to uh, Mental uh, disease or emotional disease, it seems to me, one of the biggest deterrents to that kind of stuff is uh, understanding the meaning of life, understanding why we're here. And when Jesus says, You know, I've come to do your will, that's the purpose of life. Can you say that with Jesus? Why are you here? Why has God put you on the planet in 2015? Can you say with Jesus, Well, I'm here to do your will? And is it the pursuit of your life to find out, well, what is that will? And to give yourself to it before you die. I have come to do your will, Jesus says. And I think that's the meaning of life. That's the purpose for which God has made us and created us. Because his will for us is perfect. And uh, when, when the Bible talks about this, it's uh, kind of exciting to have that settled and say, well, I know why I'm here. I am here to do the will of God. And, uh, you know, the result of Jesus uh, being willing to do the will of God is that uh, his work spills over into our life. Look at verse 10. By that will, by the will of God, for Jesus to come into this world and offer his life and give him a body and let him go to the cross, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Notice the tense. It's the perfect tense. It's has been. We have been sanctified. It's an accomplished fact. When we put our faith in Christ, we have been uh, made perfect. Look at this. Verse 14 kind of elaborates on this. For by a single offering, God has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. God has perfected for all time those who are in the process of being Sanctified. You know, the Christian life, daily Christian living, is all about us catching up to who God says we are. We have been made perfect. I mean, there is nothing about me that's perfect except this. Nothing. There's nothing about me that's perfect. You either. Don't laugh. It's true about you too. There's nothing about you that's perfect, right? And if you think there is, just give it a little time and you'll see I'm right, right? But listen, what if you had a perfect salvation? What if you've been declared perfect by God and that becomes your stake in the ground around which you build your life? What if that's the core of your identity that by the blood of Christ, like we sang about this morning so many times and in so many different ways, what if it's true? What if at the core of our lives God looks at us and he sees us as perfect and what life is about is us catching up to that perfection? Look at that 14th verse. Isn't that great? For by a single offering, God has perfected for all time, eternity, for all time, those who are in the process of being sanctified or made righteous. Isn't that cool? Do you ever think of anything about yourself that's perfect? How would you like to have at least just one thing that's perfect? That when God looks at you, he sees perfection, you know? And you can have a clear conscience if you believe that. And you live differently when you do And you embrace God. You love to be around him. You love to worship because you're not trying to avoid him because you feel guilty and you know you need to. Do, you know that God has made us perfect through the blood of Christ. It's that powerful. There's wonder-working power in the blood we talk about. I think this is, you know, more than we uh, appropriate, you know. We have been sanctified. It's the perfect tense. It means it's ongoing, it's done, it's finished, it's accomplished, it endures, it's completed, it's secure. Nothing in my life is perfect except this. <laughs> I have a perfect salvation because I have a perfect savior. And he made a perfect sacrifice and it's finished. The old worship couldn't do that. Verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Remember we talked about this? He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's a quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are in the process of being sanctified. <laughs> I think this is just like better news than we can possibly imagine. Um, Jesus sat down because the uh, debt was paid, because uh, sin was dealt the final fatal blow. Forgiveness was established, God was satisfied, and all of it has been prophesied uh, Your salvation is better than you think. And so perfected for all time. All time means eternity here. We've been made perfect in God's eyes uh, through Jesus' obedience. And we are made whole or declared complete in Christ. Um, We have been qualified for this relationship with God for eternity. This is an unspeakable gift. I kind of uh, ask myself the question, you know, um, uh, time and time again... um, what what would I give to have that kind of salvation? I have that kind of reputation with God that I was perfect. What would you give to have that? You know, you ever think about that? And I think kind of what's going on here is kind of like raising a child, is that first you give them the assurance that you love them and that you uh, will always love them and that you're committed to them and so forth. But then you go along and do everything you can to teach them to live wise and to make wise choices and to uh, honor, you know, the way that God made life to work and to encourage them and so forth. And, uh, And I think that's the way God treats us. First, he, through Christ's blood, declares us righteous, his children forever, whom he will love without exception. And then he goes on to teach us, he sanctifies us, that we can catch up to being the people that God sees us who we are, for who we are. And so when you become a Christian, when you appropriate this sacrifice of Jesus' blood unto your own life, uh, there are two huge changes that come into your life, according to our author here in Hebrews. Uh, verse 15 and 16 of Hebrews chapter 10. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, and this is a quote from um, Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. The first really big change that happens when you trust Christ and you appropriate his blood into your life is that the spirit of God comes inside of you. And the laws of God, the commandments of God, the thoughts of God, the ideas of God, the ways of God, you know, are no longer external now they're internal. They're no longer written on stones, like the Ten Commandments. They're written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, the motivation to live the Christian life comes from the inside, not from the outside. It's internal, not external. It's the very Spirit of God after the day of Pentecost that moves into our lives. Uh, The Holy Spirit is the author, and he speaks to this fact that God's spirit enters every genuine believer. So, uh, again, God places his ways in the very center of our lives. And he gives us this kind of inner impulse that creates a desire to know his will. And he gives us the power to do and to be obedient, uh, which brings joy, which is genuine happiness. You know, when you do what God asks you to do, there's a certain uh, inside witness of the spirit that affirms and brings that deep sense of You know, joy. Uh, God puts his new life right inside of us, and that pushes out the old life and allows the new life to come to the surface. He provides a means for the new covenant for transformation. Uh, By the very spirit of God, his ways and thoughts are no longer external, but they're imprinted on our hearts and our minds. And uh, when God's gift of salvation becomes real, we develop this affection for God. you You cannot live the Christian life. Without the Spirit of God being inside of you, sometimes people say, "Oh man, the Christian life's so hard to live." I say, "Hey, it's worse than that. It's impossible. You can't live the Christian life without God's power. You can't." This is the, the, the one of the major benefits of having uh, this uh, blood of this eternal covenant uh, applied to your heart is that God then moves inside of us and enables us to be able to begin to be sanctified, and to actually uh, live this Christian life. Um, And the other perfection um, that happens in a believer's life, we use the author of Hebrews' words, perfection, uh, verse 17 and 18, and then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I think those are some of the sweetest words you can read in the entire Bible. Here's what happens when you appropriate the blood of Jesus to your life by faith. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. This is the promise of God. These are sweet words, right? Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Forgiveness is the second perfection that comes to us through this new covenant. Uh, these words, if you let them get into your heart, you know, there's a permanence to them. There's a completeness to them. Our sins are gone, you know. What would you give? <laughs> what would you give to have God remember your sins no more? I'll tell you what, I'd give everything I got. But you know what? That wouldn't be enough because you know why? Why? because there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, I'd have to give up my life. I'd have to be separated from God forever. Even if I gave everything I have, it wouldn't be enough. So instead, God gives everything he has. For God so loves the world that he gave his only, only, only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish for their own sins but have what? Everlasting life. See God gave all he had because even if we gave all we had it wouldn't be enough. So God gives all he has and forgiveness follows faith in Christ. But you need to be careful because it's very possible, you know, to believe in forgiveness as a theory but not allow it to become personal and sink down into our hearts where it does us some good, where it liberates us from our past and from our sins and uh, gets rid of the guilt and gives us this clear conscience, you know. In uh, chapter 9 and and verse uh, 14, uh, we read it this morning together. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience? Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Free us up from that Old Testament mentality of thinking I've got to produce in order to get God to accept me. And free us up to serve by announcing this new covenant, this new testament. Forgiveness frees us up to allow the living God to live his life through us into the world around us and to fulfill our purpose. I have come to do your will. Jesus came to give his life. He came to make you and I perfect. He came to extend forgiveness to us. He came to remake our hearts after God's own heart and prepare us for eternal life. Can you think of any reason why anybody would ever turn away like these Hebrews, these Hebrew Christians were contemplating because of the persecution that they were experiencing in the kingdom of this world? Why somebody would ever give up the kingdom of God in order to have a little bit more comfort and peace in the kingdom of this world is what the author of Hebrews, in a couple of weeks we'll see, just warns us about. Because a day is coming when that challenge will be before us as well. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, your word is so rich. And what you did in the new covenant and in the new testament and through jesus blood is so powerful forgive us father that we don't uh, contemplate these things more often and we don't allow the truths to get deeper into our conscience and into our uh, hearts where we live from and into our spirits in such a way that we're transformed help us not to be father like the people in the old testament who had to keep you at a distance But help us to enjoy the relationship that you paid so much for, for us to be able to have. Help us to appropriate it and to live in it in such a way that you could use us, Father, to serve your purposes. May we say, along with Jesus, I have come into this world to do your will. And that's what I'm about, for Jesus' sake. Amen.